3: Welcome to the show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and we're here as we are every weekday at four o'clock to take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions, questions about what we believe as Christians or why Uh, you might have some doctrinal questions. Maybe you're just going through something in your life that you need to. Um, I need some answers. We'll do the best that we can to help you. Uh, Remember, we love your live calls. It makes the program more interesting. 340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also send your questions in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. Uh, If you're driving in your car, I remind you daily that the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now button and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. Because it's Tuesday, there's nothing to talk about except going right to the question. So let me start with the question from Randy. And Randy says, Pastor Ron, can you explain Daniel 9, 25 through 27? Uh, I can do that, uh, Randy, but let me say before I get there, um, this is a an opportunity. Uh, we've been getting a lot of questions lately about... Uh, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, the rapture, those kind of things, when when these things are going to happen in a timely manner. And uh, Daniel chapter 9 gives me the exact opportunity to do that. So let me start, and I'll take some time here, if people call, we'll, we'll sort of interrupt and I'll get back to it. Uh, But we'd love to have your questions. I'm going to go back one verse, Randy. It says in verse 24, 77 are decreed for your people in your holy city to finish transgression. In other words, to put the end to sin, uh, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Now, obviously, this is a prophecy of Jesus returning and establishing his righteous kingdom on the earth. So when he says, verse 25, no one understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. Uh, The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He, and this is a reference to the Antichrist, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is described and poured out on him. Now, Randy, a couple of things about this uh, before I get into it if you're looking at a king james version or new king james version of the bible it says 70 weeks are decreed instead of 77s. the hebrew word is literally sevens or groups of years and daniel this is a very jewish way of saying this is 70 groups of seven years or 490 years in total that's what gabriel is telling him daniel understands that and it's important to note that gabriel is speaking only of jews and things jewish your people and your holy city is what he brings up. Now if we're going to understand the timing of the end, the last days, we have to understand that all of these Old Testament prophecies deal only with, exclusively with Israel. God doesn't give us the last days information on the church. Instead, he's speaking to us about those who reject Jesus Christ and those who are Jewish. That is his focus. And the reason he doesn't speak about the church is because the church isn't going to be here during that last week. The last week is the Great Tribulation, the last seven years on earth is the Great Tribulation, and the Church isn't going to be here. So before going on to, to, to explain this a little more fully, let me just say that the, the timing, the chronology of, of end times events is really straightforward. Uh, at the very moment we live, this, this day and age we call grace. Nothing else needs to happen before Jesus comes for his church. Now remember, he's not coming to the earth for the church. He's going to call the church up to meet him in the air. And then we're going to go for a period of seven years into uh, the great wedding banquet of the Lamb. That's when we are going to be married to Jesus. We're going to receive our rewards, those kind of things at the end time. So it's very important that we understand that this isn't about the church. These final seven years are a time when God brings fulfillment to the promises he made to Abraham, to Moses, to David. Um, God has to keep every promise that he makes. So the final seventy years, the seven seven years rather, the seventieth week of Daniel, is all and only about judgment and fulfillment of his promise to the Jews who turn to Jesus as their Messiah. Now having said that, this describes the very end of the Great Tribulation. Um He's going to put an end to sin, um, and Gabriel gives him the explanation. Uh, In verse 25, no one understands this from the issuing of the decree. We know when that is. It's Nehemiah chapter 2. That happened in 445 B.C. So it's it's an important date because the 483 years, that's the seven sevens, Uh, And the 62 sevens would be, the remember, Jewish calendar would have 360 day years. It would be 173,880 days. That's when he says, uh, that's when the anointed one, the ruler comes. Now, the ruler, of course, is Jesus. We know this day, it is triumphal entry Sunday or Palm Sunday. It's the day that Jesus, for the very first time, came to Jerusalem. He came to his own and was proclaimed universally as the anointed one or the Messiah. And what that means, Randy, is that Jesus had to be there at exactly that day. One day early, one day late, and prophecy would not have been fulfilled perfectly. That would have meant it would have been from God. So it's very important. Now, we think we have that date. It happened on April 6, 32 A.D., at least according to the widely accepted scholarship of Sir Robert Anderson. And that was the day. 173,880 days after Artaxerxes' decree was issued that I mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 2. This is a staggering fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus came at just the right time. Uh, Of Jerusalem, he says it will be built with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. um, The first seven of uh, seven sevens are 49 years of time it's going to take to rebuild the temple that was destroyed in the judgment of the Babylonians. Uh, the times of trouble refer to opposition that will be encountered by those who return to rebuild. And while they never stopped facing opposition, they were able to finish um, rebuilding the temple. And, and of course, um, not just the temple, but the walls around it, which is what uh, Nehemiah concerns himself with. Uh, verse 26 is, after the 62 sevens, um, the anointed one, Jesus, will be cut off and will have nothing. Now, this is where some people get confused, Randy. Gabriel's making a very important distinction. After the 62 sevens, he means that after the seven sevens and the 62 sevens, that's 69 groups of seven years, something um, remarkable in, in a very tragic way happens. Jesus will be cut off. He's not getting what he came for. He came for his people, Israel. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Uh, Matthew chapter 23, you remember, he looked out over Jerusalem and wept, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you. How often I've longed to gather you as children, Uh, gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. Now, for a Gentile mind like ours, Randy, it's an amazing thought. God came for his own and his own rejected him. That's what Daniel is prophesying. Gabriel is making another distinction in this passage. Uh, he's making a distinction between the 69 uh, weeks and the 70th week. Um, the prophetic clock stops for a time. We have 490 years, 77s, until everything is finished, but after the 69 weeks or 483 years, there's sort of a technical problem. Um, We call this the age of grace, or dispensation of grace. Uh, We know this as the church age. Uh, Jesus spoke about us when he talked about new wineskins. And what God is going to do, Randy, is use the time between the 69th and 70th weeks of Daniel to exercise infinite patience for people like you and me. Now, how long is this going to last? Well, we know this break has lasted now for nearly 2,000 years. Surely it can't last much longer. But even if it should, it's only because God is patient and willing that any should perish. Well, it's in this last week or this last group of seven years that the Antichrist is revealed. And he deceives the entire world. Um, it says the people of the ruler who will come. Um, this is uh, the, the King James calls him the Prince, but, but that's not Jesus. This is a reference to the Antichrist who will be ruling over those last seven years. Um, we know that this is the time we call the Great Tribulation. Uh, for the first three and a half years, Jesus said people are going to be saying peace and safety. He said that in the Olivet Discourse. But in the second half of the seven years, the last three and a half years, there's going to be the worst time ever in the history of the world. That's when we read about all of the judgments, the trumpet judgments, the vile judgments, and the bold judgments um, um, in the last time. So at the end of the great tribulation, Jesus is going to come. He's going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives. All of that, uh, Matthew chapter 24, in the Olivet Discord. The, the 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 Mount is going to split and Jesus is going to return and destroy his enemies. So we've got the next thing to happen prophetically, Randy, is the rapture of the church. Um, Then we'll be plunged, not Christians, but the world will be plunged into the great tribulation. It's a time of judgment, a terrible, terrible time. Uh, We will be getting married to Jesus at the great wedding banquet of the Lord. At the end of that time, we'll come back with Jesus, And we will rule and reign with Jesus, that we who are Christians will be in glorified resurrected bodies, but we will rule and reign for a thousand years with those who survived the great tribulation in this world and those who are born during that thousand years. There will be a restoration of the earth at that time, and we will rule and reign with Jesus. At the end of the thousand years, there's going to be a um, judgment, and on that judgment um, what we'll have is the great white throne, the lake of fire, and then a new heaven and a new earth. So I hope that helps. Let's go take a call. I've been worried about you, Tanya. Nice to hear from you again. <laughs>
4: Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you
3: doing? I'm doing really well. Thank you.
4: So I have a question for you and, and it's more of some guidance. Um, so Carlos and I came across a, a very gifted, uh, young pastor and, um, you know, rightly divides the word of God. But there's been something that I, I want, Carlson and I really want to uh, talk to this individual about, and it's about a church. So currently they're in another church space. Um, they rent it in the afternoon, and, and he himself and his family have uh, purchased a big bulk of a new church. And it seems like every week it's, I don't want to say a beratement of, but it is a um, You know, it's always about money, and it's a shame that our church isn't open yet. And I feel like it's really losing – he's losing – he's losing, um, I guess, his message is not – because I, you know, I come from you guys where you don't let your needs be known, and I understand the church where he where it's supposed to be planted, Pastor Ron is an area that certainly needs it. It's a it's a, usually a, a single family home, a lot of crime in this area. I know it'll do wonderful things, but I believe that like the pastor is potentially being blinded by his own desires. That now it's becoming every week is about why don't we give and you're supposed and you know the whole tie thing we already discussed that we we know that piece so i'm trying to come up with a way um you being a pastor would know and i know this isn't how you operate at all so it's a little new territory for me and carlos we both do believe he's a very gifted he's never said anything in direct opposition to the word of god um but i feel like in his desperation He's really losing the flock um, because, yeah. you know, God puts on our hearts what to give. And so I really would like to ask your advice on how to best, out of love, address this subject.
3: Yeah. Uh, Tanya, can I ask you, how old is he?
4: Um, he's, I mean, he's in his late 40s. He's not like by any okay. means of a spring. But he was a gentleman who was rescued from the streets. He used to be a, a drug uh, dealer and the Lord mm-hmm. picked him up off the streets one day and said no more, and he walked away. And to his to his account, Pastor Ron, he has dedicated a lot to the church. Don't get me wrong. His family has certainly put in um, the work to get the church that, that they have purchased, but there's just this last piece that needs to be raised, and it's always about the money, the money, and, you know, we, we'll spend money on this, but we don't want to give our money to this, and, we'll spend, and it's just I mean, I don't even listen. I I just end up reading something else. You know, I I just open the scripture, start reading something else. And I'm I'm trying to be more of an encouragement. And it also is a very impoverished body, if that makes sense. It's not a a body uh, with a lot of money in it. So I just want some guidance because I don't want him to fall victim of that money, 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 money.
3: I can help, I think. Thank you, Tanya, very, very much.
4: Uh Thank you, Pastor Ron.
3: Uh-huh. You know, a church that's built on guilt um, is on a shaky foundation. Um, you know, we build big churches, and this is what we see happen all over the country, Tanya. Um, we we build big churches, and and um, especially if they're in um, areas that are impoverished, uh, and then we've got to do things to support those churches. And uh, once we've we've built that overhead in, then we have to keep putting pressure on people to give. And, you know, the, the Bible tells us unless the Lord builds his church or a man builds, the Lord builds a house, the house is built in vain. And that's what we find. We find a lot of these uh, places that are uh, have been built and mortgaged and opened and, and and eventually they can't support. The church can no longer support the mortgage and they end up being given away and churches end up closing. couple of things, Tanya. Uh, because I know you, um, though you're in Northern California, um, um, you have a gift to to communicate uh, genuine love and sincerity to people. So don't be afraid of of how he might respond. Uh, but but just tell him that that you're praying for him uh that your concern is that he, he's 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 on the verge of maybe driving you and your family away and and certainly I'm, uh, if that's the case there are other families because of this constant emphasis on money now again i don't know his theology you said he's doctrinally been sound thus far but but how he responds to this question will tell you exactly how doctrinally sound or unsound he is if he starts to give you the, well, you know, I just want people to get blessed, and I want people to give, and we want to do something in this church. Um, um, you know, that's just the same old prosperity junk sort of repackaged, and so many churches fall into that trap. And loving the people who are there is the way the church is going to be built, not pounding the people for money who are there and ultimately chasing them away. And just tell him, you know, you can take this or leave it, but I mean you nothing but love. Um, uh, you're obviously a gifted teacher. I know you've come from a dark place in your in your life, but but what you need to understand is that your constant um, harangues about money, and probably shouldn't use that word, Tanya, but your you're, you're constant pounding people for money is, is going to change people way You're making people feel guilty instead of showing them that you trust the Lord. Now, if his whole basis for making those appeals, look, me and my family, we've given a lot. Well, that's great. And then then him and his family will be blessed as the Lord blesses. But to ask people for money constantly not only sets them on guard, but it doesn't demonstrate any kind of love or concern. And when you've got an hour, um, uh, maybe an hour and a half for, for an entire service, why do we want to waste any of it asking for money? Now, Tanya, as you know, though we don't ask for money and we don't pass an offering here. Um, that's not necessarily bad. Um, I know many, many friends who do pass an offering. They do let their needs be known. We're just doing what God has told us to do. But this man needs to demonstrate that he trusts God. And the way he trust God is to ask God for the money, let God deal with his heart, rather than pounding the people of God, especially in an impoverished area. If he would pour out lavishly the love of God on the, the, the people that are coming to church, well, here's what I know would happen. God would turn them into a very generous group of people, as generous as the people in an impoverished area could be. And when the Lord is building a church, he'll bring people with money, he'll bring people from other places. But when you build that house on guilt, it's a foundation that's just not going to last. So it's okay for him to ask for money. It's okay for them to take an offering, whatever it is. But to make them feel bad because they don't have a church yet? The church isn't a building. The church of the people. Now, I say that, and Tanya, you know because you've been here, uh, but, but many in the listening audience don't know. Nobody wants a church building more than I do. I mean, we're in a strip center. Uh, we make use of every square inch of space here every time the door is open. But we really, really, really... We'd love to be able to spread out. We'd love to have more people in our school. We'd love to have more uh, ministry uh, available. And and to do that, we need space. We'd love not to have to tell people during our services to crunch together because we call it the Calvary crunch because there's no more room. Uh, we, we don't like telling people they have to wait till the next service uh, to get a chair because we're full. But you know what? We have to be content doing that as long as the Lord has us in this place. And I would tell him, the way I know you will in love, that what he's doing is he's isolating the people against him because they don't have the money to give. And if he immediately spins into a well, you know, they have to give sacrificially beyond what they can afford. Uh, then, then, you know, you're dealing with some, some unsound doctrine when it comes to, to money. And I'll go one step further telling you, he can't be blessed by God if his doctrine regarding money, if he doesn't understand this is Jesus's money. So pray for him. I know you do. But um, schedule an appointment, you and your husband. Schedule an appointment go in and love maybe take him a sandwich or something and sit down and just tell him that this has been on my heart i think you could do amazing things i i I really believe the lord is with you but you're going to be all by yourself if you keep pounding on people for money all the time the lord has turned our church into a very generous group of people you know uh, there's two ways to get a lot of money and one is to Um, have lots and lots of people well we can't we can't fit anybody else in so what God has done over a period of years is he's turned a small group of people into a very generous bunch of givers sort of like the church at Philippi and that's what we all ought to be shooting for you know they didn't ask for money in the first century church they came and laid it at the feet of the Apostles I think it's a very important conversation you need to have. I'll be praying for you. Thank you, Tanya. 340-9585. I've got some money questions here. Um, I'll I'll maybe get to them on the other side of of the break. Here's a question from our email inbox from Nacho. Um, Pastor Ron, could you please help me understand the use of the word ages in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace? I realize that not only only could it mean that we will enjoy his grace forever through time, and that's really what he's talking about there, Nacho, uh, because it's that grace which will allow us to do so, but could it also be... A time before the rapture and the second coming. Ages can equate to a very long time. Obviously, it's been two millennia so far. I guess I'm saying I don't want to wait much longer for his promised return. Well, I can promise you nobody else wants to wait, uh, wait much longer for that promised return either. But what he's just saying, you need to go to the verse above that. Let me turn there real quickly. We've got a minute left, I think, in this break. Ephesians. Um, Verse 6 says, Nacho, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That's positionally. He did do that. But here's the the statement of purpose. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. The idea there is that when we get to heaven, uh, we're going to forever have our minds blown away by what we see, the, the, the amazing gifts. So I'm with you. I can't wait. But while we're waiting, we invite other people to share in the grace right now and here. Thank you, Nacho. Three four We'll be back on the other side of the break. We'll see you in two minutes.
1: to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh
3: welcome back to the last half of our tuesday program 340-9585 or toll free 877 630-5757 tanya here's a question from patricia Uh, i told you i had a couple of money questions here's here's one of them Patricia says, a preacher on TV said if I gave money to his ministry, God would heal me. Is that true? Patricia, not only is it not true, but this preacher is a false, false teacher. Uh, Avoid him like a plague. Uh, Run as far and as fast away as you possibly can. Uh, This kind of nonsense is why the world laughs at so many Christians. These are the Christians who have uh, very public ministries you know we can sell false hope and you can fill a church in no time uh, they can afford uh, radio and television ministries and they say this nonsense they're, they're just peddling false hope and the, the problem is they're the ones getting rich off of the backs of the people who aren't getting healed so uh, patricia avoid him run away from him or for her or whoever it might be um it, god is the one who heals He gives gifts of healing. Uh, Only He knows um, who and when and why somebody would be healed when somebody else wouldn't be. Uh, So, don't focus on your healing. Focus on Jesus' presence with you. I know that's hard, but uh, if you were listening to the show yesterday, we had Art call, and uh, I've been getting messages throughout the program yesterday and today from people who are praying for art, uh, and my counsel to art is the same as it is for you. Whatever is causing you the pain, physical pain, or whatever illness you're suffering from, don't be tricked by somebody who's only trying to separate you from your money. Um, when when it says he gives gifts of healing, it doesn't mean he gives one person the gift of healing. and. That's what a lot of these charlatans claim. Um, This is a travesty. Uh, We all know it's not true, but sometimes we we hope against hope before we find out it's false hope, and it costs us a lot of money in the process. So the answer, Patricia, is no. Um, Go to your church, your church. Go to the elders of the church and ask them to pray uh, for you and anoint you with oil. understand and believe that God could heal you if that's His plan, but at the end of that prayer be able to say, Nevertheless, Thy will, O God, be done. Sometimes, and I'm not making light of your illness or whatever condition you have, but sometimes it's much better for us to hear God say, My grace is sufficient, rather than get the healing. Now, you probably might be thinking, Patricia, well, well, you don't know what I'm going through. Patricia, I've been visually impaired. I haven't driven a car for 19 years. Um, I can't read much anymore. Um, one of the great losses of my life, I love reading. Um, I have no depth perception, so I bump into things. Now, I'm not going to go totally uh, dark like Art was talking about yesterday or those who called in to comfort him. Um, So I can see a field of vision. I I can recognize familiar people when they get close to me. Um, um, But but it's just been a really difficult thing to deal with. As you can imagine, there's a lot of people who love me. I'm their pastor. And I've got people all over the world praying for me, and they always ask, well, how's your eyes been praying for God to heal you? Uh, A long time ago when I sought the Lord on this one issue, when at first I really believed, I was told that, that eventually I would lose my sight completely. Uh, I really believed that um, asking God to heal me was the right thing to do, and He told me very clearly that my grace is sufficient for you, and it has been, it has been. Let's go to an anonymous call from Jonestown, Texas, on line one. Thanks for calling. You're on the air.
2: Hey, Pastor Ron. It was just on my on my heart to call in and offer some encouragement to Art, uh, who called in yesterday, whom you were just talking about, and uh, you know, just want him to know, you know, feel him as a brother. And I'm praying for him. And I'm sorry I didn't get to listen to the second half of the program yesterday. But if it hasn't been offered, if he needs any assistance getting an audio Bible, I'd be more than happy to help.
3: Oh, bless your heart. Thank you very, very much. Uh, uh, we, we had some people call in and, and lots and lots of people praying for now. So please keep praying for him. And uh, what, what I will do is is if, um, if he needs that assistance, and lets me know um, we'll uh, we'll somehow make the connection with you. I'll I'll give you a message over the air, and and we'll uh, we'll make sure you can connect. Thank you for offering your heart uh, and your prayers. Thank you very much. See, this audience is absolutely the best, just the best. Ben says, "What did Jesus mean when he said John the Baptist was Elijah?" Now you remember. Uh, Jesus said, if you can receive it, John is Elijah. But but he didn't mean that John the Baptist and Elijah oh, is Elijah reincarnated. Uh, Elijah, uh, you remember, uh, the, the, the prince of the prophets uh, in Israel. Uh, Elijah will return. Uh, he'll be one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. He and Moses will return, and um, um, he is the forerunner of the Lord's message. So w- what he's saying is, John the Baptist is fulfilling the office of Elijah for Jesus's first visit to this world. John was a forerunner. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, he was doing baptisms of repentance. So what he was saying is that John the Baptist is doing the same work that Elijah is going to do in the end times. He's just doing it now, sort of to launch this uh, age of grace that I talked about in an earlier answer to a question. Um, So he's not saying, no, this is Elijah reincarnated, and some people thought that. He's simply saying that he's doing the same work, prophetically he is preparing the way for me now Elijah will prepare the way later for the conquering king the one who will return with lord of lords and king of kings on his robe and on his thigh but John the Baptist was preparing the way for the greatest message in the history of the world that sins can be forgiven that grace is going to be extended his unmerited favor Um, and that was John's ministry and that's what he was referring to not that they're the same person Ben um, but they fulfill the same office at different times in Jesus' ministry and life. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate it. hope that helps. David asks, is healing included or guaranteed in the atonement? You know, we uh, have a, a more false teachers who are who, who indicate that by his stripes we are healed, which promises that we'll be healed if we just have enough faith. But, David, that's not true either. By his stripes we are healed has nothing whatsoever to do with physical healing, nothing. There is no mention of physical healing in the atonement. Now we have gifts of healing, as I mentioned to another question, um, in this church age that we have, and people do get healed. But that has nothing to do with the atonement. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. In, in our lives, and God, who's sovereign, heals according to his will. But the disease that we're healed from, Isaiah 53 is pointed to the disease of sin. We are condemned. Now we're saved. We're lost in sin. Now we're found. I love the testimony of the Men in Jesus' ministry, in the Gospel of John, once I was blind, now I see. One time is, another one is, once I was lost, now I'm found. Um, but healing is a gift, it's not a right, and the Atonement David has nothing whatsoever to do with physical healing. Now, for everybody who's come from a bad church background or a faith or prosperity background, I know that sounds blasphemous, but believe me, the promises of God that he's given to us, no matter the condition we're in, are glorious and wonderful. And way too often, way too often, we're looking at Jesus to give us things or to do things for us, rather than being grateful for what he's already done. Nathaniel asks, what role does works have in our salvation? Well, depending on what you mean by the question, Nathaniel, uh, works have nothing to do um, with with our salvation. We believe uh, by faith, and then we're saved by grace through that faith. And even the faith is a gift from God. So we don't have to do anything. We don't have to fix anything. We don't have to improve our lives. We don't have to pay a, a penance. Nothing in order to get saved. Now, the role of works in our life is simple. Once we are saved, because we're so grateful, because we're so very, very grateful, then we do good works. Why? Because we're happy, we're grateful, we've been set free. My life was so filled with pain before I got saved, I was asked a question uh, just yesterday by somebody. And he wanted to know, what is the biggest difference Jesus has made in my life? I've been saved for nearly 27 years now, and um, the biggest difference is simple. Once I was lost, and now I'm not. Once I was on my way to hell, and now I'm on my way to heaven. Once my life was filled with pain, pain I caused, not just to me, but to others. And now my life is filled with joy. It doesn't mean my life is easy. But I'm so grateful, Nathaniel, for that. That I do, I hope, works that glorify God. Now let me talk about works for a minute. Because a lot of times we have a tendency to look at works as though we sort of earn God's love. God loves you as much now as if you were doing nothing at all. It doesn't matter whether you're doing Great works or no works, He loves you infinitely because God only has one measure of love, and that's infinite. But you see, when we do good works as a result of being saved, then we're representing Jesus in this world that we live in. Again, we don't do good things in order to make God love us more or to make God happy or to get God to bless us. We do good things because he's already done all of that. Because he's crazy about us. And so we do good things. And we don't look at those good things, and say, see what I've been doing for you, Jesus? No, it's not that at all. We just do them. And Paul says to don't grow weary in well doing. So we just keep doing it and doing it. And we do it because we're so thankful. Now, one other thing about these works, too often we think of stuff that we do, uh, the anonymous phone call we just had, that was a really, really nice thing. If he needs help with an audio Bible, I'll be happy to help him, I'll make sure he gets it. I mean, that's a really good work, but but, but the work in itself, God doesn't need that person to do that work. God wants to share rewards for that work, and that work is just being kind and loving. So if you want to know what works should result from our salvation, Galatians 5 tells us it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are the good works. It's a changed life that everyone can see. So nothing happens before we're saved. We don't have to do anything. It's a free gift from God. But if you're really saved, James' says, good works are going to flow as a result. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Let's go to San Antonio now and talk with Michelle online. Michelle, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
2: Hi. um, I have a question. I spoke with you maybe about a week ago, and um, I'm glad you just mentioned that about not having to work because I'm still battling with the born again. I have to work for it. I have to work for it. And so I was praying about, you know, what God says about being a living testimony, and then fear just came over over me, and, you know, I know I had spoken to you about the enemy putting thoughts in my mind, now the enemy's saying, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're a living testimony, now you're going to have to go back and pay back everything you did, and, and, you know, fear (laughs) is coming over me now, saying I have to go back and do this this and this and this and this and this. And, you know, the kind of the penance thing, I mean, I was raised Catholic as younger. I had the confirmation and everything, and that's what some of my church members are saying. You're still stuck on the the owing something. God is not going to say, well, now you have to go back. Everything you spend, you have to go back and admit that to everybody and tell everybody and tell the world. Then you're forgiven. And it's just I don't know why I keep having these thoughts that I need to pay for everything.
3: Michelle, you have good friends, so listen to them. A couple of things. The reason I know, keep, I know, I'm crazy. Yeah. <laughs> let, let, me, let, me, let me say this. The, the, the reason you're having these thoughts is because you have an enemy who's pushing buttons. He's trying to, to, to stumble you in your walk with the Lord. He doesn't want you to walk in freedom. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 says, It's for freedom we've been set free. And what he wants to do is take you from the freedom that God paid for and put you in bondage because, frankly, he wants your Christian walk to be miserable so that you'll fall away. And so here's what we do. We understand that he's the source of those lies. And then you have a decision to make. Every time those thoughts come back in to your brain, you have a decision to make. Do I believe what God's word says or do I believe what I'm thinking now? And the, the answer is obvious. Well, what I'm thinking now I know is wrong because it, it, it argues against what the Bible teaches. And so I choose to believe the Bible. And that's one of those times where you exercise the gift of faith. Paul says that we're to take those thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. Well, we do that by saying, Jesus, I know these thoughts keep coming. I know where they're coming from, but I choose to believe you. For we are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. And when you begin enjoying your walk with the Lord, when you no longer are susceptible to those lies from the enemy, it changes everything. Now, obviously, as humans, we got a lot of baggage. One of the great things about my walk with the Lord for these 27 years, Michelle, is that I didn't have any religious baggage. Um, I'd been to church just a very few times. My grandma would drag me uh, as a little boy. But there was no religion, no God, no church in our lives at all. So when I got saved, it was like a thousand pounds of weight was lifted off my back. And I was so happy and I I felt so light. Um, um, It it just changed everything. Well, that's the joy of the Lord. And that's the joy Jesus wants you to have. And unfortunately, because we're humans, we're going to have to fight the spiritual battles. But... We do that by um, new thinking, Romans twelve, one and 2 says, transform lives, and we, we, we transform by the renewing of our mind, the making new, the way we think, and we do that in the Word of God. And so, um, Michelle, it, it's just a process as a new Christian, a fairly new Christian, um, the more you rely on Jesus, the more you learn about Him, the better, I promise Um, your experience will be every day. So it's a fight. You've got to hold on to what you know is true. Um, Bathe yourself continually in the word of God. I don't know if I mentioned a a book to you um, to read uh, um, in the Bible, rather, um, on uh, uh, the last time you called. I was thinking that was you when you said, Michelle. Um, But but really dig into 1 Thessalonians. You'll love it. Um, Paul talks about who they used to be. talks about the way people in the world live, and then he says, well, such were some of you, but now... And, and he talks about their new walk in Christ. First uh, Thessalonians won't take you very long to read it all. Uh, don't worry about what you don't understand there, but just focus on those things that deal with this, and let the Holy Spirit begin to do this work in your heart of, of changing the way you think. Old habits die hard. What you want to do is help that old habit die hard, but as quickly as you possibly can. And the way to do that is to wash your brain daily in the Word of God. So it's not a thing you have to do; it's a thing you get to do. One other comment for you, Michelle, and and this is probably I, I think this spirit is saying is even more important than reading First Thessalonians. Read the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs in some books, Song of Solomon. Uh, it's in the Old Testament after. Um, Psalms and Proverbs and um, um, uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, Song of Song. It's a love story, and and in your Bible there's going to be some headers that say uh, who's talking. Um, the, the Shulamite is going to be talking. The lover uh, is a picture of Jesus. I want you to read. It's it's this will take very little time, but but I want you to let this wash over you. Jesus is talking to you, and all those parts that are saying lover, it's the lover of your soul talking to you, and he's explaining to you how he sees you. And over and over, he's going to say, "How oh, beautiful you are, my darling. There's no flaw in you. In other words, you are perfect for me, And and if you let that love wash over you, I promise you. Um, once you really understand the height and width and depth and breadth of God's love, just for you, Michelle, it'll change everything. You'll still have thoughts. You'll still have the battle. But you'll have the, the ammunition to fight with. It's pretty hard to argue with Jesus after he's told you that you're the most beautiful thing on the earth to him. So let him do that. Michelle, thank you very, very much. we're just under five minutes, so if we don't have time for calls, here's an anonymous question. What does being saved mean? Saved from what? Well, being saved, think of the word rescue. Uh, I like to to think of Jesus as my rescuer. In uh, Romans chapter 7, Paul describes his own experience Um, You know, what I want to do, I can't do, what I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing, and every one of us can can empathize with that. But then he comes to this this question, who can rescue me from this body of death? And then in the next verse, chapter 7, verse 25, he answers the question, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus is rescuing us, and what he's rescuing us from is us, from sin, from the power of sin, from the control of sin from the penalty of sin. He's rescuing us. So that's what it means to be saved. Saved from hell. Saved from a, a way of life that is steeped in sin. Uh, saved from um, um, guilt and condemnation. Romans 8.1, this is for you too, Michelle, says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So to be saved, means that we've been completely rescued. You know, we live in a time now where superhero movies are really the big thing. I've got so many crazy people here at the church who are into Marvel movies and, and Avengers and those kind of things. Uh, well, Jesus is the greatest superhero rescuer in the history of the world. And he rescues us from us, from the control of our flesh, from the influence of sin, the penalty of sin. So, anonymous, that's what it means, and if you're not saved, and it would, the question would suggest that you're not, the way you get saved is simple. Ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins. Tell Him you're sorry for being a sinner. I always say this, the most obvious thing to any of us should be that we're sinners. You know, we so often try to kid ourselves. Well, I'm not really a sinner. I'm a good person. I didn't mean those things. We're sinners, and when you ad- admit that, Jesus can take those sins there's a great Christian classic called Pilgrim's Progress it's a great read it's a better read if you get the more modern version but, but it's a great version Christian uh, the protagonist in the in the story has got this, this burden of sin it's just piling up on his back on his shoulders and finally he goes uh, under this bridge and it knocks off that burden and he feels so light and free that's what it means to be saved so repent of your sin anonymous Ask him to forgive you. He's delighted to do so. Then be honest enough to say, Jesus, I'm going to mess up again. So I need your help. Come into my heart and take over my life. And that's what it means to be born again. And to be born again, you are saved. You're rescued and you'll never again answer for sin in this world. the best thing you can possibly do ever ever ever. Hope that is simple enough. Here's another simple one. how we do it on time? under 30, Oop, under 30 seconds okay I'll, I'll come back to this one tomorrow, Jennifer, but I can answer the quick one. Uh, Jennifer wants so can you lose your salvation? The answer is no. you can't you can't lose what Jesus gave you. But I'll come back on the program tomorrow, Jennifer, and answer that question with a little bit more detail. For now, you can take a deep breath and rest in the arms of the one who loves you, the lover of your soul. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to the Word to Stand on for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, May the Lord bless you and keep you. Find somebody and tell them how much Jesus loves them. See you tomorrow at 4 o'clock. Bye-bye.